Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for having me. You can see the uh, the outline. If you can see the outline, you have an IQ of below 170. If, the, if it's vacant and blank, you have an IQ of well above 170. Which in itself is not the secret of success, of course. Uh, history is full of extraordinarily gifted people who wasted their lives. But uh, there is a bit of... I, I did actually send an outline through here. I've got a little copy of it here with my notes on it. But it was useless anyhow, so you're better off without one. I asked... Um, you not to print out the Bible text which we normally do because it's a story of Jesus where if you read the end before you um, hear us unpack it it'll kind of spoil it for you there is a lovely surprise as there so often is in Jesus' stories I'd like to ask you a fairly straightforward question and you might like to answer it in your head would you rather look healthy or would you rather be healthy if you have to make a choice that you want to look healthy or be healthy? Would you rather look like a happy person or would you rather be a truly happy person? Would you rather look wealthy, give the impression as you stroll around the university, as you go and work up at Fisher, that you, you look like a wealthy person or would you rather be genuinely wealthy? Would you rather give the impression to people that you are a successful person or would you rather be truly successful? On a slightly different note, would you rather look like a fool? So when people look at you, they think, gosh, what an idiot that person is, what a fool they are. Or would you rather be a fool? Aren't you see the choice I'm suggesting? Some people look like fools, but time actually proves that they were very, very wise. There are other people who you may look at at one point in their life and say, what a wise, shrewd person that is. But in the end... People have to look and say, well, he was a fool, wasn't he? She was a moron. Had no idea what was going on. There is an interesting book that I'm halfway through by a Russian bloke. I don't know why the Russians write such a long, long book. I suppose they've had so much time locked inside with the snow and the cold. But this fellow called Dostoevsky writes a book that in the English translation has got a, the heading is, uh, in the version I've got, it's called The Idiot. And uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating story about this man who walks into high-class Russian society before the revolution where they are wealthy and don't have a great deal to do and he walks into that culture which is obsessed with wealth and position and honour and prestige and the, the thing that the curtains are made of and the fabric that you're wearing, etc. And he looks like a bit of a goose, really. He looks like a fool. He looks like an idiot. He seems to be a little less confident and capable than so many others. But as the story moves through, and he's by no means a perfect character, he's a realistic sort of character, as the story moves through, I take it that the writer is trying to get us to think, well, who really is the fool in this situation? Or does it turn out that the, the idiot, the prince, is actually the only wise person in that world? And as the story moves on, those who had previously thought he was a twit begin to admire him and speak with him and seek counsel with him. It's an interesting idea to work out who is the fool and who is the wise person, who is successful and who is ultimately a loser. And it is a concern, I take it, that many of us have. At one level or another, perhaps not in the forefront of our minds, we want to be successful. There's very few of us, I think, except as a joke, 
would say, I really hope at the end of my life I'll have to look back and say, well, that was a failure, wasn't it? You may joke, we may crack little jokes about it, you may be happy to fail in the criterion of the school that you went to or the criteria of your parents, perhaps if you're going through a rebellious stage, but very few of us would like to have our life summed up in some objective way by saying, well, that, that person failed in life. That person was a loser, that person was an idiot, or in the Bible terms, Jesus' terms, a fool. In Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, you may already know that you are not allowed to call a person a fool. Did you know that Jesus says if you call someone an idiot or a fool, you are in danger of going to hell. Now, Jesus actually believes that hell is real. He doesn't say about someone who's had a bad weekend, that was a hell of a bad weekend. He never uses the idea of hell lightly. We do, I think, because we don't want it to be true, so we crack jokes about it. Jesus never speaks about hell lightly. But he says, if you turn to someone and say, you are a fool, Jesus says, you are very close to going to hell. That is sufficiently offensive before God who made you and who, who you answer to put you in danger of hell itself. Hell is a, a fool is a very, very strong word in the Bible. And I'm not allowed to turn to someone and say, you're a fool. I did it once when I worked at the school. Last period Friday, energetic class, keen to learn, keen to discuss. And uh, I was having some, it was a year nine class who were at the pinnacle of their curiosity and discipline. And I had this bloke who just kept shouting out as we were having this discussion. And I said nicely to him, I growled at him, I don't even try to just get him to behave in a civil, civilised way. He couldn't pull it off. So I said to him in the end, I'd given him a few words, I said, listen, you yell out one more time, speak out of the top of someone like that again, and I'm going to give you, I promise that I will give you a fright of attention, which is two hours, it's not much fun. And I, I promise, do you understand? Yes. Within 60 seconds, he yelled over the top of someone again. I said to him, you're a fool. You've got a Friday. See me after the lesson. So he waits back after the lesson. And while they've been doing some written work, I'm thinking, oh, I'm not allowed to call someone a fool. Jesus, is, you know, I'm a follower. And he didn't know that, but I'm thinking, no, Jesus is not happy with that. So I apologise to Jesus and I waited for the guy. At the end of the period, he's waiting back after the class is gone. I said, listen, mate, firstly, I owe you an apology. He looked surprised. I said, I'm not allowed to call you a fool. Jesus says I mustn't call someone a fool. I don't know if you're a fool or not. You might be, but I'm not in a position. <laughs> I'm, I'm not in a position. I'm not in a position to sum you up, because that's the problem with the word fool. It sums somebody up. Fool. I'm not saying that was a foolish act. It's a summative comment. That's why it's so dangerous. I have no right to call you that. I'm sorry. He said, that's okay. He said, so I don't get the fright. I said, oh, no, you still get the detention. You still get what you earn. But it's a very strong word. And it pops up in this story that Jesus tells from Luke 12. Let me read you. Um, it is hard sometimes to listen to someone speak, so I know particularly you had a hard morning. Sometimes it doesn't matter if you don't pay attention. Sometimes it really does. Let me read you about a time when Jesus had trouble holding someone's attention. In Luke 12, I won't read you the whole chapter, but he's talking about serious things. He's talking about hypocrisy. He's talking about the unforgivable sin, which I would have thought was worth listening to. Jesus says there is one sin that he says is unforgivable. So he's on some pretty heavy-duty stuff. He's on Judgment Day stuff, Luke 12. He takes a breath and it says in chapter 12, verse 13, One of the crowds said to him, Teacher... Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider between you? And then Jesus said, Take heed and beware. Now, you've got the situation, Jesus pauses to take breath. Here's a bloke who obviously is not paying attention. He's distracted. He's distracted by what? His dad has recently died 
And there's a very clear law on how the inheritance was divided. The firstborn got two-thirds. If there were two sons, and the next one down got a third of the inheritance. It's all clearly laid out in Israel law. This guy feels that he's been ripped off. We don't know if he has been or not. We don't know if he's just greedy or whether his brother's been greedy. But he wants to get Jesus. He wants to bring Jesus into this family squabble. And one of the downsides of being a minister is sometimes you do get to see within days of a man dying, his family beginning to fight about the possessions. In my own family, some of my brothers have already putting red things on what they want for when the mum dies. And I'm not sure if they're joking or not. I have to wait and see when mum dies, if she dies before I do. But it's tacky. And, but this guy's eaten up by it. He's not paying attention to Jesus at all. He's, he's distracted by this issue. And Jesus won't have a bar of it. He won't buy into it. He says, man, who made me a judge or an arbiter between you? It's kind of ironic because that's where Jesus says, I am the judge. But he's not going to play judge in this situation. And then he sees that this man, I hope you can see it too, Jesus sees this man is in terrible, terrible danger. And I'm not just hyping that up because I'm trying to keep your attention at lunchtime. This man is in a terrifying danger. And, and listen to what Jesus says. He says, Take heed and beware. These are military words. They're words for standing guard in enemy territory, saying, Stay on guard. Be, beware. Against what? Beware of all kinds of greed or covetous. For a man's life is not made in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus sees here not just a man who's been ripped off, but he sees a man who's in deadly danger. Why? Because his mind is filled with greed. He cannot pay attention to the things that really matter. Jesus knows this man is an extraordinary moment in history. Here is the son of the creator. And I'm I do hope you can just play with that, even if you don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus clearly did. Jesus understands that this is the most unique moment in history. God's Son has come to earth. Not a prophet, not an enlightened man. Anyone who understands Jesus in those terms simply has never listened to Jesus. The most important moment in human history, and Jesus is speaking about the most important moment in your life, that is when you stand before God, and all this bloke can think about is money. And Jesus says, be on very careful guard against greed or covetousness. That's when you, you just want more of what you've really got enough already. It's that hunger for more. That really, we have a whole industry in our culture which is designed to keep us greedy and covetous. It's probably harder now not to be greedy or covetous than almost any time in history. Not because we have less than others, and our more, we actually have more than almost any civilization in history. Many of you live at a higher level of wealth in terms of the practicalities of daily life than Henry VIII or any of these blokes, in terms of the sheer comforts and securities that we enjoy. But we are eaten up with greed. More, more. And the industry obviously is advertising. I'm not saying the whole of the advertising industry is caught up in greed, but a lot of it that we experience is constantly trying to convince you that you need something that you don't need. You never knew you needed it until they told you it was there. And then you can't be happy until you get a better computer. This is a crappy computer. How can I expect... Look at that computer that guy next to me's got. I need one of those. Uh, we, we are eaten up with greed. And they spend millions and millions of dollars, the advertising companies, in order to know how you tick. And if you think you're not affected by the advertisements, advertisement people, you really are very, very silly. It's working so beautifully with us that we're not even aware of it. There are ads that are aimed at you that don't attract me. 
There are ads that attract me because I'm old, because they're aimed at me, they're not aimed at you. There's a constant industry that keeps us greedy. And you'll see how few people are satisfied with what they have. A study in Australia recently showed that it didn't matter whether or not a person was on hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year or below the poverty line, almost all Australians believe that if they had 30% more, they'd be happy. If they were on 20000 a year, they said, if I had 30% more, I'd be happy. If they were on $500,000 a year, they believe, if I just had 30% more, then I'd be able to make life work. We are constantly eaten up with greed. And because of that, we have no time to focus on what really matters. Even to step back and ask the question, well, what is really important? What is being really successful? We just receive it from our culture. We're mass-produced Australians. We go on and on about being individuals that we're so pathetically alike. And Jesus is saying, be very careful about greed. All kinds of greed. Because you may not be greedy for money. You might be greedy for reputation. Some people are greedy for pleasure. They're happy to sell money. They're happy to get rid of money if they can have more pleasure. Some people want esteem. Some people are just desperately hungry for love. Very few of us just want money. It's the different things that money can and does give us. Because it's a very powerful God, money. And it does deliver certain things. Jesus says, be very careful. And because he can see the danger of this man, and I take it that he can see that many of us are like him, he then tells us a story about another man. And this is a great story. I want to suggest you this is the first Australian in the Bible. Let's listen to this story. He's a beauty. And he's got a great life. Jesus then told them this parable, saying, the land of a certain rich man... Okay, so he's rich before the story starts. The land of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. So he's a farmer and he has a bumper crop. And he said to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all my crops. See the problem he's got? He's got so much wealth, there's nowhere to put it. Because in those days you stored your wealth in stuff. You didn't have this abstract money sort of stuff that you could store it away. You kept, you kept gold, you kept beautiful fabrics, you kept magnificent clothes, you kept stacks of food, you kept it in stuff. But he's got so much coming in that he's... A, I mean, it's my problem every week when I get paid by the church I work at. Oh, no. What am I going to do with all this stuff? How am I going to spend it? So I tell you, if you've never had... It's a terrible problem to have. And this guy's got this dreadful problem. Poor fella. Verse 18, he's a decisive man. He said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barn and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. Good idea. And then I'll say to myself, my soul, soul, you have much stored up for many years to come. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Okay? This guy's not, he's not some driven workaholic. He reaches the point when he says, I've got so much stuff here, I don't ever have to work again. I'm just going to stash it away, and I'm going to take life easy, and I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. Good on him. Alright? The Bible says that God gives you wealth and the ability to enjoy it, that is a gift from God. Because I'm not going to bore you with the number of very, very sad stories of multi-billionaires who don't enjoy life. And it's not a fantasy made up by religious people trying to sell you a life of poverty. It's provable by their own quotes. The desperate unhappiness 
We don't have a quote from poor old um, Mr. Packer, old Kerry, but people who've been close to him, the guy who wrote the biography of him, and Rene Rivkin, who is one of his close friends, have indicated the deep, deep unhappiness in poor old Kerry. School I served at for many years, a lot of the guys had him as a great hero. Wouldn't it be great to be like? No. If, if any of the people close to me believe, I have more happiness in a single day than Kerry Packer has in years and years of his life. That's why he's got to gamble. Gambling is a great antidote. Alcohol and gambling are great antidotes to pain and emptiness. Because while you're playing the hand, or while the ball's going around, whatever particular is your addiction, life's exciting. Life's fun. You can forget everything else. So people often who gamble, they're not driven by greed at the highest level, they're driven by the desire to forget. I say alcohol and other drugs are good help in that. But here is a bloke who's rich. And I would suspect that in our best night, yeah, I wouldn't mind being like him. I mean, I'd go and work for Smith family. I wouldn't just sit on a beach. I'd use it. No, we wouldn't. But anyhow, here's a guy. And he's a triumph. This guy, there's going to be articles about him in the paper, Fortune magazine. He's the sort of bloke that get him back to speak at his school for a model of what it is to be a good citizen, someone who works hard and takes his risks and wins. He'd speak at all sorts of things. You know, a great success story. And you can just imagine him sitting back sipping his crownies or his martini or his mineral water if he's seriously boring, whatever he's drinking, right, to celebrate his great success, thinking to himself, what a lucky bloke I am. Hasn't this gone wonderfully that I should be so successful so early? You can imagine all the blokes back at the hotel, back at the club, whatever, saying, he's, a, he's done well, he's a lucky bloke. And I said, no, he hasn't been lucky, he's worked hard. He's planned well, he's been decisive. Everyone would be admired, and in Jesus' culture, doubly true. Because they knew if you got a big crop, it wasn't just because you were a hard-working farmer, it came from the hand of God. So wealth was seen to be a gift from God, and in, and in part of it, you can turn it into a poison, which we often do, but fundamentally, the Old Testament says that wealth is a gift from God. So doubly blessed. And at the moment of his great triumph, someone walks into his lounge room and says, you, sir, are a loser. You are a dreadful failure. You are a fool. Your whole life can be summed up in that one four-letter word. The, the language that I cannot use of you no matter what you do. Someone walks into this guy's lounge room in the story and says, you are a fool. Who is the person with such a sick view of life? that sees someone who is an absolute model of honest, hard-working success, yet sums him up as a moron, as a loser. Verse 20 of Jesus' story. I'll read you verse 19 so you can get the context. The man says, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have much stored up for many years to come. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God, but God said to him, Fool. You fool. It is God who sums that man up as a total three-dimensional loser. So Jesus sets up this story so everyone in the culture of his day and perhaps even now will be going, yeah, this guy's a winner. He's rich. He's a farmer. He's not doing some shonky job in the city where he's not earning anything or not doing anything. He's an honest, hard-working farmer. He's made it. God has blessed him with a good crop from his soil. And God walks in and says, you, sir, are a fool. You have no idea 
you have made a series of stupid decisions that have destroyed you. You fool, God says. Why? This very night, your soul is demanded of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? This man is saying to himself, my soul, you have much stored up for many years to come. God says, your soul is demanded of you tonight. And all this stuff that you've been sweating on, who's going to get it? And who cares? Whatever it was, the man who thought it was all his, it ain't his. He's lost it. And God says, he's a fool. Now, it's not because he's rich. Listen to what Jesus sums the story up with this statement in verse 21. Jesus said, So is anyone who lays up treasures for himself, which this man has done, but is not rich. And he says, This man's in trouble. This man's a fool, according to Jesus, not because he's rich, but because he isn't rich. He's a beggar. He has nothing. So is anyone, Jesus says, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. There, is, there are people in this room, there are people in this university who are rich towards God. And there are people in this room who are complete paupers before God, who are seriously in debt before God. And Jesus says, if you have been so wealthy and successful, you've flown through university, you've fallen into a magnificent job, and by the age of 28 you can retire. Yet it's possible to do all that and be a complete beggar, according to Jesus, according to God. Why? Why is this man such a fool? Why is this a sort of man not to be like, although many of us, I think, gee, I'd like to be in his position. What's wrong with what this man's done? Well, two things. Firstly, he has clearly been unprepared and unthoughtful for the one obvious certainty of human life. As the uh, economist Keynes, who says, in the long run, we're all dead. Probably more probable than many of his other statements. But in the long run, we're all dead. Now, here's the problem. You and I have been brought up in such a sad, silly society that if someone talks to you about death, part of you, if you're a well-conditioned Australian, you go, that's very morbid. Ah, uh, I shouldn't have that. No. Well done, that's it. Well done. It's exactly where we want you. We want you to just be a good little consumer, buy and die. That's what we want you to do. Just forget the... Just go and buy, buy, buy. We don't want you to think for crying out loud. Don't, don't do anything more than think about the momentary short life you've got because what we want you to do is to spend your money on our products and borrow money so you can buy our products so we make the profits there and here. Now, just be a good little sucker. So anyone who talks to you about death in the long term, don't listen to them. They're dangerous. They're probably trying to sell you something. <laughs> don't listen to them for crying out loud. No, 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 no. They're morbid. Be a realist. Pretend you're never going to die. Oh, go to university to prepare for a future you may well have. But don't prepare for the one certainty. Oh, no, 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 no. We're realists. There's something... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a proud Australian. I love being Australian. It's a great place to live. But there's some very, very sad things about our culture. Go home and ask your, your parents if you still live with them. Mum or your dad if they're working. Mum, dad, if you've got a superannuation program, if you've got something you're planning to do when you retire, they'll probably be happy to tell you about it. Dreams they have when they can stop working so hard. And then ask them, Mum, dad, have you planned for your death? I don't mean that they're paying some funeral fund so that you don't have to pay the ridiculous cost that we charge people to die in our culture. But, but you know, 
Are you ready for what's on the other side of death? And, and I think it's fair to say that in many homes that would be considered to be bad form. Try it at your granny's 90th birthday party next weekend. <laughs> granny, are you ready? Now, why can't we talk about it? It's the one certainty granny's got. <laughs> now, I mean, not, I, I mean, I'm really, I'm not just, I had, both my grannies are dead, both of them had long lives, and, and there's nothing wrong with speaking about death except in our culture. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we laugh about it, because we're uncomfortable. You choose a subject that people are uncomfortable with, you get an easy laugh. Sex and death are two easy ones. Because we're all a little uncomfortable about it. This man is a fool. He's an idiot. Because he prepared for all sorts of possibilities, had all sorts of insurance if he was a modern person, taken out against all sorts of possibilities, but he had chosen to ignore the one certainty. And if you do that, you are an idiot. According to God, you are a fool. I don't care if you get the university medal. In fact, who cares what I care about? God is unimpressed by the university medal and any number of us for scholarships fully funded to any number of universities. If you are not prepared for death, according to Jesus Christ, you are a fool. And even if that's what mummy and daddy have taught you to be, a well-educated fool, that's all you are. And you will hear God say to you, fool, because you are. Maybe a mass-produced fool, you may have think you've got plenty of company. But in the end, that's exactly what we are. To be unprepared for the one certainty, to die and leave everything behind, to fall into eternity, which is so... I mean, I was going to say it's more real in this life, which is a silly way to talk. It is just as real as the life you're in. And you and I will be in it very soon. If you enter into eternity with nothing, that you've left behind all the treasure you've worked for, that you have invested nothing into eternity, and you'll know if you're doing it, if you're hardly thinking about it, you're going into it with nothing. It's a very famous old story from an Italian sort of peasant culture, which goes like this. There was a rich man who had a fool, a clown, and after a couple of years he got tired of them and said, listen clown, I just can't bet you're such a you're such a stupid fool in the end. You had some funny jokes, but I can't bear it. Look, on your way, here's some money. Look, I'm going to give you this beautiful wooden staff to help you walk from village to village. And what I want you to do is take this beautiful hand-crafted staff and walk around with it. And if ever you meet a man more stupid than yourself, you give it to him. Okay? This staff belongs to the most stupid person you can imagine. Well, ten years later, the fool had wandered around through Italy and up through various parts of Switzerland. He came back to the village and he heard that his master, his old master, was dying. And he uh, received permission to come and see his old master. And he walked in and he said, um, Master, um, how are you? He said, well, I'm not well. I'm about to go on a journey, a long journey. He said, no, he said, um, when would you return from your journey? And the master said, well, I'll, I'll never return from this journey. I said, um, have you prepared for the journey? And the master said, no, I don't suppose I have really. I've been doing other things. Then the fool thought, did you know you had to go on this journey from which you will never return, from which you've made no preparation? And the master said, I I did, really. And so the fool handed him the staff and said, Master, you are the most stupid man I've ever met. You're about to go on a journey from which you'll never return. You could have made preparations for it. You knew you had to go on the journey and you've made none. Here, Master, you rightly are the owner of this staff. Now, there from a peasant culture. There's a terrible lot of wisdom, isn't it? This man unnecessarily falls into eternity with nothing. He is a fool. And secondly, in terms of why he's a fool, and lastly for today, 
The real tragedy of this man is this. He, he dies a beggar, as a pauper. Whereas Jesus Christ was literally dying to make him a millionaire. That's true for us. Jesus Christ literally dying to make us rich with treasures that are wonderful now but will only get better. They're solid, lasting treasures. In verse 4 you have one of them at this chapter. It says, with Jesus talking to people, he says, I tell you, my friends. Now Jesus is simply not call everyone his friend. That's a title he reserves to his disciples. Those who have said, you are my master, you are my guru, you are my coach, I will follow you. I will learn how to live, not from my culture, not just from my family, not from the media. I will consciously learn what success is and what it means to be human from you. Jesus calls those people my friends. And there are some of us here in this room who are rightly in that group called the friends of Jesus. And there are others of us who are strangers to Jesus. We may know of him, but there's no real relationship between us and Jesus. Jesus says, Greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends, he says, if you do that which I command you. So it's possible actually to become a friend of Jesus Christ now. And he loves you. He dies to make that friendship possible. Because the friendship is a result of forgiveness. You can't be a friend with Jesus, with the owner, ruler, maker of the world, until you deal with the fact that we have said, thought and done things which have deeply grieved him. But when we receive, when we turn to Jesus and say, I would like to follow you, he says, I need to give you a wash. I need to forgive you for living for so long in my world, ignoring me, and doing things which are deeply uh, unpleasant in my sight. The way you've treated people, the way you've spoken about people, the way you've planned your life has been offensive to me. But it is possible to be a friend. For Jesus to look at you and say, you are my friend. That is lovely. I ended that friendship 25 years ago. I had no idea how good it was going to be. No idea how wonderful it is to live now as one of Jesus' friends. And I'll tell you what, when I die, I'm only going to get better. My wife's going to get a lot richer when I die, and I'm going to become, well, I'm going to walk into the visual presence of Jesus forever. It's good. It's a treasure that Jesus died to give this goose, but he chose to ignore it. And later on in the same chapter, in verse 32, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So not only can those who committed their life to Jesus Christ know that Jesus says that they're his friend, but God, his Father, I can actually call the maker of the universe, Daddy, Father. And that is appropriate. There's not one person in this room who can call me Father legitimately there's three little people who can and that puts them in a very powerful relationship with me when I hear those words dad or daddy that has got my attention like you haven't got if you call me Ian reverend pal any other term right daddy it's got, that's got a hook in it and the person who has committed themselves to Jesus Christ is not just forgiven wonderful and basic as that is but God actually adopts them into his family in the same way as Jesus could call his father, Father. Now they are the treasures that satisfy the heart, give purpose and direction, because then the Father says, now Ian, let me show you what the family's about. 
I've got big things I'm on about in the world. I want you to be part of it. Life becomes so excellent, so right. So this man dies, see? He lays up all his treasures for himself. And he says 60 words. There's 60 words attributed to this rich fool that he's known by Christians. This parable is known as the parable of the rich fool, quite appropriately. 60 words, 12 of them are either I, me or mine. He's a wonderfully self-obsessed person. All he thinks about is himself. And God is saying, you gather all your treasures for yourself instead of being rich towards God. You are a fool. You're made for something bigger and better for him, for God. So who's the fool? Some of us, I guess, if we're honest, although we don't want to say, we've got to say in the end, Jesus Christ is a fool. See, if you're sitting here saying, this is nonsense. Right? Of course the man who dies with the most toys wins. So you ask, wins what? Now, the teacher, the man with the most toys wins. Brilliant. Right? Is Jesus Christ a fool for saying this? Or is this man a fool? We know who knows about life, and it isn't us. There are three men in this story. The apprentice fool, the man who was so distracted he couldn't pay attention to Jesus, the rich fool, and Jesus. We're all lined up behind some of them, in some way or another. Christians are people who say, I am with Jesus Christ. I will learn from him, I will receive two treasures from him, and I will with him. You may finish up financially rich, you may not but you'll certainly have treasures that do the deed, the deed for the soul and are lasting, real, solid into eternity. And that is what Jesus is about. That's what he dies to give us. There may be some of you who say, gee, this is interesting, I've never thought about this. I'm, I ought to be a wise woman, a wise man, and have a bit of a look at this. But there may be some who say, look, I know that I realise this is true and I've been playing games with it. I don't know if I normally do this in lectures, but I'm going to suggest we pray. And I'm going to read you the prayer now and you can work out if this would be a prayer that you could honestly pray with. Let me read it to you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for speaking so clearly. I admit that my life is really all about me. Thank you that you died so I could be forgiven and become your friend. Today, I return to you as my master and ask you to forgive me. It's a simple prayer that says, gee, I need to wake up. Well, it tells, tells this scary kind of story to wake us up to reality. So I'm going to suggest that I'm going to pray this prayer now. I'm going to pray it slowly and leave a pause after each phrase where you can echo it to God in your heart. I'm going to have my eyes kind of half closed. The reason we do that when we pray is simply it helps us concentrate, not be distracted by handsome men or beautiful women or someone else's computer that you're envying. It just helps us pay attention to God. So I'm going to, you may want to close your eyes. You can just have a sleep if you like. But some may want to pray this prayer with me to turn back to Jesus. Well, let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for speaking so clearly to me. I have to admit that my life has been all about me. Thank you that you died for me so that I could be fully forgiven and so that I could become your friend. Today, I want to turn to you as my master and my coach. And please forgive me. Amen. Now, 
gesture before I sit down. You will have seen uh, the card. Now this one, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, you'll be able to read it. This is a response card and uh, when I became a Christian, which is when I was 19, I found the first three months of being a Christian were the hardest months of my life. I really was a slow learner at this being Christian business and we would like to get you help. So here's the suggestion. If you've got a pen or something, you might like to write something here. There's some boxes. If you prayed that prayer, or a prayer you may have changed it as you went through and you've decided that yes, you want to become a wise person and get in, in tune with Jesus Christ to become a Christian, you might like to tick that box and then give us some way to contact you so the people, the students here who run the EU can be perhaps give you some literature, answer some questions you may have. If that was you, it would be helpful probably to tick that and then give us somewhere to contact you. If you think, well look Ian, I don't have enough information on the basis of one 40 minute look at a story from Jesus to make an honest decision, why not tick that box and, and commit yourself to finding out more? Don't drift off because the uni will probably keep you busy enough in your social life that you may not think about it much. You need to put some things in place to work this through. You may want to tick that one. I want to find out more about Christianity. If you want that sort of information, that sort of help, please give us a name where we can contact you. And look, if you go away from me having given us this information and you think, oh, no, that was a mistake. When people ring you up, if you say, look, I don't want to talk about it, that, that will be respected. We're not like the Reader's Digest. We will not pursue you for years and years and years, okay? So I think you can safely put this uh, here and it will be looked after. Thank you.